0: Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the September 10, 2023 session, focusing on Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Making up is hard to do. I'm David Cassidy.
1: I'm Nikki Hardiman.
2: I'm Crystal Shepherd.
0: And I'm David Adams. I try really hard not to break things, but in, inevitably, through lack of coordination or just Murphy's Law, stuff gets broken and, and sometimes so like my dad growing up he was the fix it guy and it was fascinating how many things he could fix. I on the other hand have no ability to fix things unless maybe it's software related but other than that <laughs> it's really a problem I don't know I'm wondering is there anything of value and you could any time across your life that broke that you were able to repair or maybe weren't able to repair
1: Okay, when I was in high school, I was in band. I was a band nerd. I loved it. I'm here for all band geeks. But it was the day of our concert, or like our final concert of sophomore year. I was dating Joe, first chair trumpet player. Okay. That's right. Oh. That's a flex. That's my flex, y'all. Okay. And he went to hand me his trumpet. Oh, no. And I went to get it from him. And he thought I had it.
2: And
0: oh, no. I
1: didn't have it yet. And it dropped bell first on the floor of the band room totally killed it could not like he couldn't push the buttons down on it and like he has the big solo right because he's first trumpet and so he had to borrow somebody's trumpet that day so then i had to go home and tell my dad that i broke (laughs) my boyfriend's trumpet and we were gonna need to pay to get it fixed (laughs) but we were able to pay to get it fixed 300 later Um... and, and he did get his He did get his trumpet back. And that's not why we broke up. He broke up because he ended up being a jerk. But other than that.
0: But he got a new trumpet out of the deal. Yeah.
1: He did. He got a shiny, brand new trumpet out of the deal. Yeah. That was like when it hit the floor, y'all. I thought I was going to Ralph. Like it was, I felt so sick to my stomach. It was the, like we were all racing around the band room getting ready for the concert. Oh, no. So that's mine
3: i happen to be the mr fix it guy oh so i don't remember anything i've broken that couldn't be fixed but because we grew up being taught that if you're going to use something you have to learn how to fix it so i'm always out working on cars and i build strange things with computers in my basement and i even remember driving over to let's say dr cassidy's house and fixing his windows for him because he didn't know how to do that that kind of repair he's not that much of a. trust me everybody he's not a fix it guy so it's always interesting to me both to see these things that say oh you can't fix that it's a challenge accepted and the other is is there that what happens when i can't fix something how do i deal with the frustration because it doesn't happen very often Mm. but it does happen
2: I had a summer job at the aluminum plant that employed a lot of people in our community. And they had me in computer services, IT. I don't know why. They were doing a big computer upgrade. But back then, back in the olden days, the way you would add memory to a computer, you didn't just get a new one. You would actually learn to take the computer apart and plug in memory, like little memory You guys who know computer, little memory cards, chips. Yes, thank you. And so they taught myself and another college student how to do this. And so we went out into the plant to do this. And I fried literally multiple computers to the point that they took me off of helping the rollout of putting more memory into the computers. They were like, do you have electricity in your fingers? Are you touching the side of it before you go? And I'm like, yes, I'm doing everything you tell me to do. I do not know. So apparently I am electrical. I don't know. I just know that i I'm electric. Yeah. I fried multiple computers that they had to replace. Yeah. So I don't know how that happened, but it happened.
0: Yeah, oh, I'm surprised they kept me
2: there. Yeah, I'm, appri- I'm surprised they like kept me on the job.
0: Oh, I don't remember what year it was, but my mom and dad, I was in seminary, and my mom and dad had bought me a computer so that I could use it. And these were early days IBM XT days. Okay, <laughs> three floppy, floppy disk. That's right, the big floppies, the whole thing. Five and a quarter. And so Five I had this, I had a Tandy 1200. HD had a lovely 10 megabyte hard drive in it anyway, (laughs) but I that was my machine to write my papers on and everything. And so I had I had a Coca Cola one with sugar and everything in it and I knocked it over on the keyboard. And this was one of those cool clicky keyboards made it was like a tank. And so I unplugged everything and nothing got fried, but it was. A gooey sticky mess in that keyboard and so i had to take every bit of it apart and clean it and alcohol and let it dry out and it never worked right again <laughs> but, but so i'm not it would work but if, keys would stick And anyway, so i don't think i was successful in repairing it i had to buy a new keyboard but yeah that was an ouch because it really was a cool keyboard a lot of clicky clacky <laughs> but, it is good when we can fix things that are broken but sometimes that's Harder to do than at other times. And that's even more true when we talk about relationships, isn't it? And today we've got a passage that I think is going to lead us to talk about this sort of dynamic. So I'm going to leave it to you, David, to take us into this, if you will.
3: Sure. I always like to tell people that whenever two or three are gathered, there will be a church fight. (laughs) <laughs> it's not that I like to pick on the Gospels, but long experience has taught me that church people are just like other people, and that whatever, whenever they gather, misunderstandings and conflicts inevitably arise. We have aspirations of doing better, and we might be more embarrassed about it than non-believers if we ever stop to think about it, but we nonetheless engage in disagreements. Years ago, I had a good friend and colleague who was a Catholic priest. We called Father Dan. Dan was a wonderful person to hang around with, if for no other reason than the fact that he looked just like Richard Dreyfuss. But the thing I most remember about him was that he could do what I called the priest look. In certain situations, if people were getting unruly and disagreeable, Dan could just give them a quiet look that instantly transformed them into guilt-ridden wrecks. As I used to tell him, I'm not even remotely Catholic, and it made me feel guilty— Somehow, I think that the capacity to feel guilt and shame when we fall short of being the people God wants us to be sets us apart from others, and I despair at how this capacity seems to be lost in our times. I once preached this passage with a sermon on the importance of complaining. Being the big nerd that I am, whenever I think of complaining, my thoughts naturally turn to Monty Python. I realize it is not everyone's cup of tea, Some of us follow the shoe, and others follow the gourd, after all. Still, to set up the sermon, I had Lizzie and Amanda from our youth group act out the famous parrot sketch, where John Cleese tries to return a parrot to Michael Palin at the pet shop. While Cleese insists that the parrot was dead when he got it, Palin comes up with several explanations. Most notably that he's not dead, but is merely pining for the fjords, as a Norwegian blue parrot is wont to do. As I went on to explain, it's perfectly okay to complain when someone has done something to hurt you, but you need to be careful about how you do it and pay careful attention to redeeming the situation rather than creating a rift between people that may never ever heal. At the time, I was able to blissfully and blindly tell church folks how to kiss and make up, and all was good with the world. Looking at this passage now, though, I wonder if the writer had really thought this through. And if so, whether we suffer because we don't really read this passage in the larger context of the things Jesus teaches us. Unlike other written sources in our era, we don't get to contact the writer and suggest edits. But if we could, I'd certainly suggest some. For starters, the very first sentence of this passage, Matthew 18:15 through 20, assumes that the reader's choice to feel offended by someone is a valid one and that the situation can only be made right if the other person adopts their perspective. Why should you be listened to and not the other person? Shouldn't there be some statement in there that invites the reader to consider that they might be misinterpreting the situation and possibly even be the party in the wrong? Again, knowing what people are like and knowing where we are in society right now I don't think it's very helpful to read about how we can all decide to feel aggrieved, and it's the other person's problem if they don't come around to our way of thinking. It's easier for me to imagine some random Karen reading this passage and running with it. The bigger issue I see with this passage, though, is that it seems to provide some cover for abuse. As increasing numbers of people deconstruct their faith and largely fall away from the Church, We often hear stories about how people weren't taken seriously, about how they were never allowed to be who they were, about how they could never ask their questions for fear of having whip out passages like this as a basis for rejecting them, about how people in power could leverage passages like this to silence and reject opposition. Millions of people have been chased away from their faith, and it's hard for me to embrace passages that can be used for such purposes. So, what does this mean for us, looking at this passage? First, we need to realize that, as Michael Palin said, Norwegian blues stun easily. It's really easy to stun someone's faith and relationships when we mishandle personal conflict. This idea that someone can control the agenda by manufacturing grievances, or that someone doesn't have a place in your faith community unless they get with the program, needs to be challenged wherever and whenever it appears. We're all fragile, and none of us deserves to be placed in a position where we can be further hurt. Second, we need to learn to use this method of addressing disagreements in a positive way. I think it was originally offered as a way of ensuring the community was involved in addressing the disputes that arise whenever groups gather. And if it is being done in good faith, it does offer a clear path for moving past the petty things. If someone hurts us, we should talk to them about it, even though both of us should be listening. If some form of mediation might help, we should seek it. If the community might be damaged by the conflict, perhaps we should decide to walk different paths. We don't need to be posting videos of our agreement on TikTok. Cyberbullying people, ostracizing them, or taking part in other hurtful acts. We should be nurturers rather than antagonists. And maybe, just maybe, we might want to admit that sometimes we could be wrong.
1: David, thanks for getting us started. And thank you, especially, for addressing the ways that passages, particularly this one, can be used to cause harm. If we are not clear about that, then then I think we just keep perpetuating it, even if we're not doing it exactly ourselves. So I really appreciate you pulling that out.
3: I was thinking about song that I remember from Steven Taylor. It was a song called I Manipulate. And <laughs> and in the song, the singer's saying, Yes, I know that parable. It's the story of the prodigal. And if you question what I'm teaching you, you rebel against the father too. Mm-hmm. I think that's right of a piece with you can just see this passage being used in that way. If you don't agree with what I say the problem is, then right. you're a rebel against our church, our congregation, our right. relationship. And you need to be told to leave. And how many people now have taken that option and Mm -hmm. can't find their way back to faith because that door has been closed.
2: And I liked this image of being nurturers rather than antagonists, because I think there's just so much division in the church. I remember being in seminary, and we had a church history professor, and he was brilliant. I I loved his classes. But every week— we would go in there and it would be death and destruction and bloodshed yeah. because this person or this group disagree with this. And he's like talking about Anabaptists fighting with this group and people who believed in immersion and people who didn't. And he's like, you know how they took care of the people who believed in immersive baptisms and we're like, no, how? And he's they drowned them. And I'm like, what? And so the next class we came in. And he asked a question. I, can I just raised my hand. I said, look, I said, this is awful. Everybody's just killing everybody else. And he's that's church history. That's a lot. of. It's not all of it, right? Well, there's good things that happen in church history. But I think that rather than agreeing to disagree, rather than trying to have some level of peace between each other, it just was, it's my way or the highway. And it's sad. Even today, like— Just the intolerance and lack of like genuine Christian love for one another, it's disheartening. And I think that's another reason. It's not just because people are getting kicked out of the church. I think that's another reason why people are leaving. It's because they're not seeing this genuine care and love and authenticity. And that's just really sad. So I like this image of being nurturers rather than antagonists. I'm going to hold on to that one. I like it.
3: And I think if you have that image, that is the ethic by which you approach faith, then this passage makes a lot of sense. It works Mm -hmm. in that context. But the problem is, we don't live in that context. And with Mm -hmm. no ability to change what this says, we leave some big loopholes there that people tend to exploit.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of times we lately, I have been thinking about this as I have studied scripture that we. Our context is so dramatically different than the context of those people who lived Mm -hmm. in the New Testament times. The people who are the audience of these books were the minority. They were oppressed. They were marginalized. They were, and not only for their religion, but also just because of who they were and who was in charge of the government around them and that's not true for us today in our day christianity is the majority religion it shows up in everything that we do sometimes on purpose and sometimes just because it is the biggest and the most popular or the it has the most people in it and so it's the default
0: well, that's right it our If we interpret this from a position of dominance, we're not capturing it. And let me pick up the football and carry it forward a little, if you will. When I read this passage, I'm similarly troubled if I read it as the letter of the law. But if Mm -hmm. I look at the spirit... Not that this is a law, but the spirit of this text assumes that the people involved want to work things out. We want to live together and build community, that there's this common goal so that if that assumption's in place, then... If somebody comes to somebody else and says, "Hey, <laughs> there's a desire to work it out," and it's almost like the first part of this passage assumes they'll work it out, you'll work it out. But if it doesn't, then you could bring in more of the community that wants to work it out. And even at the end, where there we are, and if I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it'll be done by for you by the Father in heaven. It's all about the value of togetherness. Mm. Now that can be exploited. That can be. Terrible things can happen with that. But the spirit of this idea that a community that wants to be together, community that wants to work out the stuff that's going to happen when people are together, that's a worthy spirit to have. And that's, to me, that's a takeaway I can embrace here and even be reminded of how in my culture today, it is not always, it is not often the assumption that everybody wants to work it out. It may be, I want to have my way. And that clearly creates a problem. But maybe this is pointing us as communities of faith to finding that that mutual desire to be together and to work it out.
1: I think that this passage also assumes compromise.
0: Yes, yes.
1: It mm-hmm. assumes everybody will get something and everybody will give something up. yes. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the way that we're operating in our world right now. We're just being
0: very hateful. And it points to how terrible, how harmful. Let me use that word: how harmful polarization is for community.
1: It is.
0: And we all feel it. We Mm -hmm. all feel it. I was, I was with a group that at a church where they had a lot of division recently. And they were asking questions of themselves. Are we a terrible people? Do we need to change who we are? Did we do things Mm -hmm. we didn't realize? And a lot of it, I think, is just the doggone polarization. We're all so quick to put people and views in boxes. And it just makes community so hard. What would happen if instead we worked so hard to put community first? Yeah. I don't know have we forgotten how to do that?
3: (laughs) I think you bring back another good point too, and maybe I misread things, but I've always looked at Matthew as a passage where Jesus paints pictures of what heaven is like, what heaven's supposed to be like, what we're supposed to be. And this is another passage that illustrates this is the world that should happen. And the passage gets abused, certainly, and people get abused, certainly, because the passage exists But if we look at it in context, no, this is an image of what we're supposed to be like, what the world could be if we would make it such.
2: But I think it goes back to that idea of compromise and that everyone's going to have to give up a little bit of power. And I think, and I say everyone, I think the people that are in power will have to give up power for it to become equitable. And I think that a lot of times, In religious institutions, once there's like a, aha, I've got this controlled power so I can control the narrative, we're very afraid of letting go of that control. And we don't want to give it up because control equals certainty. And I wish that we could come back to that place of community where it is more of, an equal playing field for people to be able to, to love and care for one another and to give. And that's the kind of hallmark of what we talked in the last podcast, but the hallmark of Christianity is loving and giving love. And I think that as our communities are right now, because we are so saturated in our culture, I think it makes it very difficult to do that.
0: And I think back to this idea of read the scripture from our Perspective from our position mm-hmm. in culture, if we look at the New Testament as mostly about helping us learn to believe the right things, then it becomes a work that I think is distorted because it leads us into this, who has the right ideas and who has the wrong ideas? And how do we correct those that have the, right I- the wrong ideas? And how do we empower those who have the right ideas? And it, choosing between who is right and who is wrong, who is in and who is out, seems antithetical to actually how we see Jesus live. (laughs) If, however, we see the New Testament as a group of believers trying to figure out what does it mean to be a community of faith following this person of Jesus, we read it differently, right? So this passage today is part of that struggle, part of figuring out how do we get along. And I end up being drawn to this conversation as it bubbles up again in Galatians. And so I'd like to close us today with a look at Galatians, a part of Galatians five, which is a very familiar passage, but I think it gives us some very practical helps (laughs) about how to be community together and how not to be community together. And it contrasts the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit which again, we can read as those who follow the right rules and who don't follow the right rules. But if we see it as ways of being together, maybe we read it differently. Here's what it says in verse 18. But we, if you are led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, the, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Kindness, generosity, faithfulness, peace, patience, love, joy. Those are all ways of being. Maybe, maybe if we practice these ways of being, We, just like the folks in the New Testament, who are struggling in our own way, in our own time, with what it means to be community. Maybe those ways of being can lead us forward. Thank you all for this good conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study Curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.